0: Have your Bibles, open it to Acts chapter 9. i want to try and get through the whole chapter. We'll see how things go here. But let's start, Acts chapter 9. Let's start at verse 1. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus so that he, if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? and did not eat or drink anything. We come to probably the second most significant event recorded in the book of Acts. The first would be Pentecost, when the Spirit descended upon the church and breathed life into the church. But this would most likely be the second. It is actually given three accounts throughout the book of Acts. Here in chapter 9, also in chapter 22 and in chapter 26, it's rehearsed again. That's how important it was. Obvious reasons, as we know, Paul became the great apostle, the greatest theologian the church has ever known, has penned the majority of the New Testament, A man who is just mightily used by God. And here is the conversion. Here is where his life is changed. It starts off saying that he was still breathing out murderous threats. And that word breathing is actually he was muttering. It's kind of like grumbling. And we see an escalation taking place. In chapter 7 we saw that witnesses were laying clothes at The feet of a young man named Saul when they stoned Stephen in chapter 8 we saw that he began to destroy the church going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison and then now here he's breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples and we see this escalation taking place in his life against the church. Throughout history there are There's been numerous conversions that are amazing. This, of course, ranks among the highest. John Newton, who was a sailor and was a base man, like most sailors of that time, was involved with Slave trading. He was actually a slave under a slave trader and worked for him in a sense until he got his own slave ship. And it's recorded that one night when there was a, a tremendous storm while he was on that boat and he had been reading Thomas Kempis's The Imitation of Christ, that he was shook to his soul and, and he gave his life to Christ. We know him for writing, famous hymn, Amazing Grace. He went on to become a leader in the evangelical movement in the 18th century in England, along with such men as John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, William Wilberforce. And on his tombstone is inscribed the following epitaph. It was written by him himself. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slavers in Africa was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Another account of a man whose life was headed one, distraction, one direction, had an encounter with the living Christ and made a complete and radical change. Another man, Mel Trotter, He was a barber and he was a drunk. His alcohol problem was so severe that when his young daughter died, he actually stole the shoes that she was to be buried in and pawned them for money to buy more booze. That's how low he was. One night, he staggered into a mission in Chicago and he was miraculously saved And then he had such a burden for men on Skid Row that he ended up opening a rescue mission there in Rapids, Michigan. And he went on to found more than 60 more missions and became a supervisor of a chain of them stretching from Boston to San Francisco. A man who was in this one estate had a conversion, changed his life radically and affected the lives of so many people. Same is true with Augustine. There's countless stories of men and women, who were miraculously changed. begs the question, what about us? Oh, it might not be as dramatic as Paul, where uh, the Lord himself comes and speaks to us, or even as dramatic as John Newton, or as profound as Mel Trotter, but... What is that conversion that's taken place in our lives? What is the change? Where were we? And where are we? And where are we going? Because conversion, repentance, is at the heart of Christianity. We need a Savior. Jesus died to save sinners. He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, to make a change. So what's the change in our lives? question that we need to ask ourselves. Paul's was dramatic. From a destroyer to little one. From a man who was persecuting the church, breathing out, muttering, murderous threats to become one so mightily used by God change that God is still doing in the lives of people today. I know some of you, and I know some of the changes that you guys have been through. And it's a testimony that God is still alive, that he's still working, that he is still in the business of changing lives. Isn't that good? Isn't it good that he's still changing lives? I'm glad he's still changing mine here is Saul, he, he's hunting down fugitives. He's gotten orders, he's gotten permission to go and go to Damascus. Now, this is about 200 miles away. This is about a week's journey by foot from Jerusalem. And we don't know why he chose Damascus. It was a very popular city. There were definitely a lot of Christians, but remember, last chapter, they scattered as the persecution started. As Stephen was martyred, the church fled. They started going everywhere, and so now Saul is going after them. He's again hunting them down. It's the fugitive. You know. He's going after these you know, people who are trying to flee his persecution. And so he sets off to Damascus, and as he's going down there, we see that God himself does something miraculous. Verse 4, or verse 3, it says, As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And that word for Lord is not like we would think, oh, see, he recognizes it's Jesus. It's more like, sir, who are you? He's knocked down. He is blinded by this light. In Acts 26:13, his account says it was about noontime on the road and he saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. So this isn't just a light. This isn't like a flashbulb, you know. This is something brilliant. This is something so bright it knocks him down. Have you ever been woken up in the morning by a bright light? It's like you can feel it, you know. You can almost hear ah, the sun comes in, or someone opens a curtain, and just the sense of it—it like hits your body, especially if you're asleep. Well, in a real sense, Paul was in the dark. His life was surrounded by this darkness of who the Messiah was. He thought he was serving God, but he was going the wrong direction. And then he heard the voice. Now it's interesting, because as he says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, and he tells him to get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. I love it again, because we talked about this last week with Philip, how God just gave him one step at a time. He didn't tell him all the things he wanted to do, he said, go to Caesarea, and then go to the chariot, and then God translated it somewhere else. Well here he just tells him, I want you to go into the city, and then wait, I'll tell you what to do next. Just gives him one step. God's good at that one step. Isn't he? Don't we want to know step two? I I so want to know step two. And God seems to give us step one and have us trust him for step two. So he tells Saul, go to the city. And he hears, it says in verse 7, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. That's a curious verse to me because he understood it but they didn't his account in chapter 22 it says my companions saw the light but they did not understand the voice of whom who was speaking to me so they heard something but they didn't have an understanding of what was going on and i wonder well was god just speaking to him and and they couldn't understand it or was it that their ears were blocked in some way and they just couldn't understand it because something similar happened in John's gospel in John chapter 12 when it says father glorify the, your name and then a voice came from heaven i have glorified it and will glorify it again and the crowd that was there and heard it said it had thunders it, it, excuse me it had thundered others said an angel had spoken to him so some didn't understand it but some said no, an angel spoke, which is curious. Is God speaking and we're not able to hear? Is the voice of God there sometimes, but we don't understand? The Lord says, my arm is not short, my ears are not deaf, that I can't save." but your sin has separated you. Many times, why we don't hear, it's our own condition. Our own condition blinds us or makes us deaf, unable to see, unable to hear what God is trying to say. It's not that He's not speaking. it's There's a condition in us that's wrong. And so, they didn't know what was going on. Saul, verse 8, got up from the ground, when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. And so they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink. You know, it's curious when you take a photograph, you put the film in, in a dark place. It's in a container. You put it in the camera and it's dark and, and it's got, it's coated so that when light encounters it, it leaves an impression on the film. And so when you take the picture and the shutter opens, it captures the light and imprints it on the film so that whatever was there, seen, is now imprinted on the film and then it goes back to dark. Because if it's left open, it'll overexpose and that image won't be held. It's very similar with Paul. He was in the dark. He didn't know who the Savior was. This light flash. The image of Christ was impressed upon him and then it went back to black and just gave him time to be inside that little camera room wherever he was and think about that for a while. Think about the impression that Christ left in him. And for three days he didn't eat or drink anything and he was in the dark. Three days What was going through his mind in those three days? What would go through your mind if you put yourself in a situation like that? You approved or voted for the stoning of Stephen. You saw this young man put to death and you were all for it. It's interesting because in Acts 17, Paul actually quotes The same verses that Stephen quoted when he shared. wonder, did those stick with him all throughout his life? And then in Acts 17, there in Athens, he says the same things that Stephen did. What went through his mind? All the people he had taken and put into prison. The men and the women. And now the realization that, oh my gosh, what have I done? What have I done? And to be in that place where all you have is your thoughts. You can't see, didn't eat, he didn't drink anything. Powerful. Powerful impression that God made on this man. Now, God speaks to people in various ways. And I find it amazing as... I think of the things situations and people I know of and I see what God did to reach Paul God knows what to do and how to reach people and it never ceases to amaze me how faithful he is to accomplish those things there was a, a young girl who got bit by a spider her parents went to upland and she was in a coma for months, like eight months or so. She came out of the coma. She received the Lord. And a few months later, she passed away. I think, well, that's a curious thing. Good thing she came out of that coma just in time, and then she ended up passing away and went to be with the Lord. God has an amazing way of reaching people. One uh, gentleman who lives in Upland who contracted the West Nile virus a few years back. He's one of the only people who contracted it and survived. I knew his family. My boys played Little League with his son. I was his coach and manager for few of those years. And when he had gone into the hospital, I'd gotten a phone call from his son and, and from his wife saying, Jack's in the hospital. Can you come and pray and visit him? And he was in a coma. He, he was out of it. I went there and I prayed with him and I prayed with the family and he miraculously came out of the coma. And I got a phone call from him after he'd come out, and he said, can you come and talk with me? And I went out and met him. He was at a recovering at a hospital. I forget which one it was. Um, Kalima something. Um, anyway, we went down to this hospital, and I was there talking with him. And he says, you know, when you came to the hospital, I knew you were there. And God told me that I'm going to get better and that I need to talk to you when I get out of this condition because he told me that I need to receive Jesus. And I was like, what am I here for? You I was like, okay, well, what else did he tell you? This sounds pretty good. But God has a way of reaching people where they are unreachable, but he has enough wisdom and power, of course, to be able to find the way to get to people wherever they're at. He did it with me. He did it with you. He reached us. You know, Colleen was sharing Sunday night about the police officer who came and talked and shared with her at that time and, and said the right things, was there at the right time to make that impression on her life. Boom. Pointed her the right direction. God had the right person at the right time right there. He's good at that. And Paul, it took a lot. Paul, it took a lot. It took an encounter with the risen Christ. But as he encounters him, he goes on now to to minister to Paul, then Saul, but he's going to be known as Paul, so I'm just using Paul. Verse 10, it says, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a a man from Tarsus named Saul for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hand on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. Go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and he entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Enter Ananias. It's great. His name means the Lord is gracious. And it's interesting, the names that are here. Ananias, Judas... That's whose house they go to. And even Saul, those those aren't three very good names in the Hebrew history. And in history, I mean, Ananias, just a few chapters back, was struck dead. Judas, well, we all know Judas was the one who betrayed the Lord. And Saul, the first king, he didn't have such a good reputation either. And it's almost like God's redeeming these names here. It's almost like, you know, I'll take a guy named Ananias. Yeah, I need to get that name redeemed, and I need uh, Judas. Yeah, we're going to get that name out of there. And let's get, well, we got Saul, okay? I mean, three names that aren't really well-known, and God, it's just curious how God does that. Have you ever known someone, and that name leaves an impression on you? I mean, I couldn't name my kids some people because of, you know... I can't name my kid that. Man, I knew that guy. He was an idiot back then, you know, so I'm not going to name my kid after him. Just names stick with you. And so, God's almost taking these names and just redeeming it. I think it's kind of cool. But as he goes and he appears to Ananias, Ananias answers him. And he tells him what to do. And of course, I love what it says because it gives us insight into what Paul was doing those three days. He is praying. I love how God says he's praying. How does he know? Well, he's talking to me. (laughs) He's praying. I've been talking with him for three days now. There's a passage where the Lord sees and calls one of uh, the disciples. And he says, there is an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And he says, how do I know you? And he says, I saw you when you were under the tree. And he falls down at Jesus' feet and says, Lord, you know, and I'm like, "What, what... What did he, What does that have to do? Just because he saw him under the tree, I wonder if he was praying under that tree. And the Lord said, "Oh yeah, I saw you when you were." You know, it's just God sees. He's praying. Hey, he's praying. He's talking to me right now. Hold on. Shh. Okay. Okay. No, go back. I mean, God just his ability to hear and to move and is there, while Paul is in darkness, he's hearing him, and he says, "No, he he's praying," and in a vision. He saw a man named Ananias in a vision. Who gave him the vision? Well, the Lord did. Remember in chapter 2, your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Again, I wonder, are we hearing the voice of God? Because I believe God still gives visions. He still gives dreams. He still ministers to us. Are we hearing? Are we listening? And of course, Ananias answers and says, Um, (laughs) God, something you, I don't know if you know this, of course he knows it, but this guy saw, and I love this because what would you do? If God told you, I want you to go see this guy who killed this one guy and is responsible for throwing these people in jail, I want you to go talk to him. Um, Lord, I've heard about this guy, and I love the honesty of the scriptures. Again, it just shares what is real. And that's how we know they're so true. It's, it's so true. It's true to life. It's, I would, I would, I'd probably say more than Ananias did. Ananias was an incredible man. He says, Lord, I've heard about this guy. I mean, he's coming down here to take us prisoner. He's gotten word. And the Lord said to Ananias, go. This, is my, this man is chosen instrument to carry out my name before the Gentiles and their kings. Now, we see a fulfillment of that where he's before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26 and most likely before Nero as he's heading in Acts chapter 27. So God knew, no, I'm going to use this guy. He's going to appear before the Gentile kings. I have plans for him. And it says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And throughout the book of Acts, we see that he did just that. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. That's an incredible verse. There's a lot that happened in the heart of this man, Ananias, between verse 15 and verse 17. There's a whole lot that happened. There would be a whole lot that happened in our hearts to be able to say, okay, here I go. Especially however long it took just to get to that house there. I mean, it doesn't say that Ananias was fleeing, so he's probably a resident there in Damascus. And now he's going to the house, Judas on Straight Street. I mean, Damascus is still there to this day. It's mentioned in Genesis. It's one of the oldest cities there are, Straight Street. That's kind of a cool name. And he goes, okay, I'm going to Straight Street to meet this guy, Saul, and just tell him. And that's what he does. He does just that. Verse 17, he goes into the house, he enters it, and I love what he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me this way that you might see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Brother Saul. What would that do to Saul's heart? Here is one of the people I was coming to arrest and throw in jail, and he calls me brother. An endearing term. I'm his family. Boy, what what a conviction. And, And isn't it great to have that family? Isn't it great to be part of this family of brothers and sisters because of Christ? How powerful and how, how important it is, even as we're going to see later on. And so he goes there, and he lays hands on him, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and something like scales fell from his eyes, which I, I know, I'm curious about that. What was it? But anyway, we don't know. Something like scales, that's all it says. And he got up, was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. And so here's the conversion of Saul. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. He regains his sight. He is baptized. What a day. He, he goes down there. He's receiving his strength. And then continues in verse 19. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. So he hangs out there for a while. And at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus was the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Now between verse 19 and and verse 22, You have to insert Galatians chapter 1, verse 17, where Saul went for three years into Egypt and Arabia and studied. That happens right here. We don't know exactly where, but there's a a gap that takes place. We know immediately means that right then, but then it says later on, it seems to see that maybe in verse 21, all those who heard You know, from 20 it says, at once he began to preach in the synagogue, the Son of God. And then verse 21, all those who heard, that might be a three-year gap between verse 20 and verse 21. According to Paul's account in Galatians chapter 1, verse 17. So, something's happened here. He went for three years, he started thinking, learning, going through the scriptures, and finding Jesus throughout that. And now, when he comes back and he's there in the synagogues, they were astonished and they asked, Isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem? And and the reason it seems like between those verses is that gap, because now they would know he was the man, but if he was gone for three years, you know, kind of in hiatus for a little bit and under, you know, the radar, all of a sudden it'd be like, Isn't this that guy who was going to come down here a while back and do this? Well, he's back. He's here now and he's actually. Preaching about Jesus. Now remember, he was taught under Gamaliel. He had credentials. They would have welcomed him into the synagogue. This guy knew his stuff. And as he's teaching them, it says, isn't the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among all in his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful, and he baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. That word proving is the words joining together. He was taking the scriptures and putting them together with the person of Jesus Christ. That's what is meant by proving. He was taking the scriptures, taking Jesus, and joining them together so that they could see this is who the Messiah is. Here it is. But notice, even though he baffled them, they didn't believe. You can baffle people and they still don't believe. You can make them marvel, but it doesn't mean they're going to receive. And that's exactly what we see taking place here. They were baffled, but in verse 23 it says, After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. Guess he didn't convince them that much, right? They're still trying to kill him. Verse 24, but Saul learned of their plan day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But the followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. And he talks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11.32. He gives account of that. He said he was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through their hands. And so, uh, 11.33 actually. And so, here he's baffling them. He's coming. He's he's joining together the truth of who Jesus is, but they don't want to hear it. They're not about it right now. It's upsetting them. Doesn't matter some people you can't convince. Doesn't matter how much proof you have. They just got mad. In fact, sometimes you get people so much proof, they just get angrier and angrier and angrier. That was the case here. Verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Ananias did it. The disciples are like, "No, you know, you could say, "Hey, Saul wants to see you." No. No. Okay, and they, let's hide, okay? And they all go to some other place. Where would they go? "Hey, Saul wants to see. No, we're not here." You know, they just they didn't want. They were afraid. I Again, I, I just love that because you know here they are, the disciples. God has just done amazing things. They're still afraid. Do you ever feel like you should never be afraid? You know, We just shouldn't be afraid. I need to have courage. You know the strange thing about courage is it's not the absence of fear. It's really the absence of self. Because the emotion you feel when you're courageous is fear. Isn't that a rip-off? You'd think you'd feel, you know... I feel courageous. No, you, you feel afraid. You just don't act on that fear. Instead, you act on whatever is in front of you. Run into the burning building, you know, go to Saul and talk to him. Whatever it is, you, you put aside the fear and do what is before you. So here, they were afraid. Saul's been killing people. So he finally... And I love this because verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on the journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. You know what? I am so glad for the Barnabases in my life. I'm so glad for the people who have stood by me when others didn't want to. I'm so glad for those people who are those sons of consolation. That's what Barnabas means. And we need to be that for people. We need to be a Barnabas to somebody. Someone that we can stand beside and help through those times when no one else is standing with them, that stand near them and hold them up and strengthen them when everyone else is leaving them alone. But Barnabas, thank God Barnabas was there. All the people The small people, like Ananias, you never hear his name again. Throughout the book of Acts, that's it. That was his role, but what an important role. Barnabas goes with Saul on his journeys, but what an important place he plays right here in Saul's life. As he presents him and defends him before the apostles. Verse 28, it says, So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly, In the name of the Lord, he talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. (laughs) Get out of here. And this is funny because verse 31 says, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord." Paul had boldness, but his boldness caused problems. They tried to kill him. They had to get him out. You got to get out of here. You're, you're just, you're a little too much right now. Settle down, Paul. You had a little too much caffeine, okay? You just need to move out of Caesarea. You need to go on, and then they enjoyed peace. As soon as Paul was gone, they enjoyed peace. The guy had zeal, the guy was fervent. He was in your face. He had all the knowledge. But he needed a little growth still. And when they kicked him out, then the church enjoyed peace and it actually grew. It is possible to be too forceful. I did it. When I first became a Christian, I expected my family to be amazed. You know, I'm a Christian now. You knew what I was before. You should all be saved now, because look at me. I'm a Christian. And I was in their face. I didn't have a lot of wisdom. I had a lot of zeal, though. I had no problem telling them they were going to hell. I had no problem, you know, telling them they were all sinners. I, they had to be saved. And I was, I pretty much knew everything, you know, even though I was a two months old in the Lord Yeah, I know, I've got this down, I know. it. I just had a lot of zeal, not a lot of knowledge, not a lot of wisdom. Just talked with a a young man recently who, gosh, is just the neatest young man, just an incredible young man. And he was brought into a situation where he was sharing, and his zeal pushed him into an area where he's looking back now, and he said, you know what, I shouldn't have said as much as I did. And how many of us have been there? I mean, it's like, yeah, I should have shut up a long time ago. I didn't. Same thing with Paul. He went there, and he's, I've got the answers. Three years I've been studying. I know the scriptures. I studied under Gamal. I'm going to get them. I'm going to fix them. And he baffled them, and he bewildered them, but they didn't believe. He just pushed and pushed and pushed. And so the disciples pushed him out go to Caesarea, go on. It's too hot here for you. And once he left, they enjoyed peace. Sometimes we need to settle down so that the peace of God can settle things down. It's difficult to convince someone into the kingdom of God. It's just a difficult thing. It doesn't matter how much you know. Convincing isn't What's necessary, it's conversion. And that's the work of the Spirit's job in our hearts. We don't get convinced into the kingdom of God. We get converted. Conversion takes place in a lot of ways. Some people do understand, put the process together and respond. Some people are just won by love. But the whole point is to be led by the Spirit Sometimes we need to live our lives being a living example, uh, living testimony of who the Lord is. We are living epistles, the scriptures tells us, or we are to be living epistles of who Christ is. And so it's important for us to, to live in that way. Okay, let's see if we can go through this. I'll try and finish the chapter. Verse 32, as Peter traveled through the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydia. There he found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and take care of your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydia or Lydda, sorry, and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. And Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which, when translated, is Dorcas. Should have stuck with Tabitha. Anyway, who was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent him. they sent two men to him and urged him, Please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothes that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Now these verses have so many similarities to Jesus and his ministry. When he went to the paralytic man and said, take up your mat and go. Now here's Peter saying, take up your mat. Uh, And he was rise. We see the, in uh, Mark chapter 5, uh, I believe it's chapter 5, the, the young man's uh, daughter. He tells her, her name, um, gosh, did I write it down? Ah, I did, good. <laughs> her name is Talitha. And the word that's used for rise, Talitha Kuma, means young girl, rise. And here it's Tabitha Kuma. Same thing. We see Peter doing what Jesus did. Remember when Jesus went into that room to get that young girl and have her rise up. He he kicked out all the people who were there mourning, said, go on, leave. And he prayed with her. Now Peter does the exact same thing. We see Peter imitating Jesus. What a great thing to do, to imitate Jesus. And what also is remarkable to me, Peter was a pretty bigwig. I mean, this is some time after the church is going. He is up there. But he takes the time to go to this one man. He takes the time to go to Dorcas, Tabitha. He's not too busy. And I think it's neat that they went to Peter for her sake. Who was she? Well, she made clothes and helped the poor. She wasn't a pastor, she wasn't one of the apostles. She was a lady who helped the poor. They needed her. She was useful. They showed him the clothes that she made and did for the poor. You know, sometimes you need a plumber. You know, if your pipes are bursting and water's, you know, flooding the house, you don't need a pastor. You need a plumber. You don't need this pastor, that's for sure. You need someone who can fix the problem, someone who is handy. Thank God for plumbers. Thank God for Tabitha, who took care of these things, these small tasks, and and helped the poor. We need her. Go get Peter. He's in town. They desired his help for this woman because she was useful. Just, Just be aware what is useful? You're useful. You don't have to be an apostle. You don't have to be a pastor to be useful. She was very useful. They needed her. They cared for her. They wanted her back in the ring. So they went and got Peter. And again, his imitation of Christ did the same thing. I also love verse 40 because it says that he got down on his knees. Now I wonder, how did they know he got down on his knees? I'm thinking they saw him. I'm thinking someone picked in the window. You know, he's going in there with the dead lady. You know, what's going to happen? Someone looked around the door, the corner, and he was on his knees. Years ago, when I was working over at Calvert Chapel in Pasadena, I forget the reason. I went walking into Xavier's office. I needed him to sign something or do something. And I walked into his office, and there he was on his knees, praying. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, he's praying. And he was embarrassed. He goes, oh shoot, and he got up, you know, and was like, uh, you busted me, praying. And I remember the impression it made on me, wow, he's praying. He's on his knees praying. This isn't about him just knowing enough. He's actually asking God to be a part of whatever he was asking. I don't know. I didn't ask him. You know. It was one of those embarrassing moments. You'd have to know Xavier, too. He's a very private guy. But it left an impression on me when I opened that door and saw him praying on his knees. I mentioned Sunday when I received the Lord, and the gentleman who led me to the Lord said, well, let's pray. And I was like, okay, sure, let's pray. And he got on his knees, and I was like... Oh, this is serious. <laughs> you know, when you get on your knees, it's serious. I remember Omar when uh, we prayed, when Omar received the Lord. We were over at Islands. And I remember just the Lord putting it on my heart. We were out in the parking lot. I said, "We need to get on our knees and pray." And so there in the parking lot, we got on our knees and we we prayed. I just I, I remember it being important to me, and I thought, I want to I want this to be okay. You want to accept the Lord? Let's do it right here on our knees in the parking lot. Let's pray. Something about on our knees stands out. So Peter got on his knees. It's a sign of humility. It's a sign of dependence. It's a sign saying, I I need you, God. And that's what he did. May we take these examples that Peter showed us that all these men, whether it was Ananias, whether it's Barnabas, Peter, all these people who exemplified who Jesus is, and the things that it produced, it produced the greatest apostle that we know, uh, and it saw a woman come to life. The gospel was furthered because of their obedience. May we be obedient as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness, your goodness. Lord, for reaching us in our darkness. For illuminating our lives with your goodness, with your love, with your mercy. Lord, give us wisdom. Lord, may we hear your voice and be obedient like Ananias. May we be like Barnabas, Lord. Defending, Lord, those who need it. May we be obedient like Peter, even imitating you in all the things that we do, that our lives might honor you and give you glory. Thank you again, Lord, for this time. Pray your word would sink deep into our hearts, Lord, and we would retain the things that you want us to know for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.